Hello, welcome to a new podcast for the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and our March 2018 issue has the theme of critical care. To discuss critical care, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Valerie Page, a critical care consultant at West Hertfordshire Hospital's NHS Trust. Dr. Page, welcome. Thank you. Critical care trials commonly fail to detect treatment benefits. Why do you think that is? I think there's a number of reasons why these apparently trials with no therapeutic benefit are being published. Just the burden of illness is so great. So these patients are extremely sick with a lot of dysfunction. And then we give them a therapy that might work in, say, in a less sick population, but is not able to, to act in our patients. And a basic scientist friend of mine has said that, you know, in delirium, you know, he wonders that we've been able to be effective in treating delirium with drugs, given the insult that the brain is having at the time. So in terms of the studies, we're looking at a very sick population. If you look at a less sick population, say post-op patients admitted to critical care, some of these therapies would appear to work, but they're kind of dismissed because we'll say, well, actually, those patients don't constitute the general critical care population. And we design our studies to make sure that our patients are sick. So we'll exclude patients that are less sick, potentially, so only, only ventilated for, say, six hours as opposed to a planned ventilation for 48 hours, because we'll think those less sick patients will dilute the treatment effect that we're expecting from our therapies. So I think the, there's the burden of illness. I think the outcomes that we measure is always challenging. The outcome usually ends up being mortality, and we know that that's an unsatisfactory mortality, but its patients either die or they don't die. So it's very crisp, and it's a definite outcome. But there's probably better outcomes that we could be looking at that are meaningful to the patient population that have a benefit, but that we're not actually measuring. So hopefully this will be addressed with the introduction of core outcome sets. The core outcome sets is a short list of outcomes that every trial in a certain research area in a patient group will be expected to report on. Basically, a group will do a big project. There'll be a systematic review. They'll extract all the outcomes that are reported on. They then go out to patients, carers, people, ask them what outcomes they think are important. They'll then go through some Delphi surveys, focus group interviews, and whittle down the outcomes and culminating in a consensus group then they'll say, right, okay, these outcomes, we need to report on them. And if you've got all these studies in the same patient group reporting on the same outcomes, you'll be able to compare and contrast and bring together all that data. And there may be, you know, hopefully there will be something that will say, actually, looking back on these studies, this is obviously a positive finding. There's already one in mechanically ventilated patients in respiratory failure, which I think was published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine. There's ones in dementia and otitis media in children. And there's going to be more of these. So hopefully they will help inform these trials. The final thing really is the heterogeneity of our population, which we, again is commonly known. We'll be comparing a 19-year-old, say, with fecal peritonitis as a result of severe Crohn's with a 91-year-old patient who has you know, kidney injury and well, on the background of congestive cardiac failure and giving them all the same treatment. If we sort of take smaller groups of patients, it just takes much longer to recruit these trials which are fairly modest numbers in the first place by the scheme of clinical research and by which time things have moved on. So I think the heterogeneity is a problem. But if I can just paraphrase Einstein, it's not that we're failing, it's just we're finding things out that don't work, that don't improve our patients. Therefore, we're not now using those in our clinical practice. So our patients are not being subject to therapies that are supported by observational evidence that in theory should work, but in fact in practice as demonstrated by these trials, don't work. That's all my opinion and speculation. 
But some really important points there about patient populations and a great little Einstein paraphrasing as well. Following on from that theme of trials producing a negative result, we recently published a trial that found that induced hypothermia was not an effective intervention in patients with septic shock. Now, induced hypothermia has been shown to be effective in different conditions. So what do you think was the problem with this trial particularly? Not sure necessarily there was a problem with the trial itself. I think uh, it was a well-conducted, good trial. It was multi-centre, multinational, in fact. And I think hypothermia is a, is a, a good therapeutic intervention uh, to use. It's been used in a number of conditions. I'm not sure how effective it's been shown to be. So the Cochrane Review on Traumatic Brain Injury asked again for larger well-conducted trials into hypothermia and brain injury. I think it's used in severe liver failure. In this paper, it was used on septic patients, hypothermia versus what appears to be normal thermia. So it wasn't necessarily hypothermia versus patients who were pyrexial. So that might be one thing, is that avoiding hyperthermia might be as good as cooling down patients. It was stopped for futility 436 patients were recruited as opposed to 560, which is always disappointing that the, the, the whole trial is not completed as it was planned. So I think that, you know, was the hypothermia for long enough? That kind of, there's always that kind of question, did they go too low? But I think essentially it showed that it doesn't work in sepsis or that normal thermia is hypothermia is the same. From my delirium interest, I think that both groups had, had a lot of sedation. Their RAS, medium RAS, uh, you know, level of arousal was RAS minus three, which has been shown to be associated with worse outcomes. Patients who just briefly open their eyes to voice. And I think you have to give patients, if you've got to cool patients down to 32, they have to have some sedation and they probably have to be, they have to be cut quite deep. So that's another complicating thing, all that sedation and, and effectively sedation coma. Although that was present in the normal thermic group as well, the median was the same, although the range wasn't quite as steep. So I wonder about that as well. Talking as well, you mentioned in the answer to my first question about heterogeneous patient groups. So patients with critical illness, they can be left with long-term adverse outcomes. There's a study in this issue that explores clinical phenotypes of delirium during critical illness and their relevance to long-term cognitive impairment. Why do you think it would be helpful in this case to differentiate heterogeneous patients into more defined phenotypes? I mean, because you've got a heterogeneous population, then you've got a very heterogeneous syndrome, which is delirium. I think the study, again, it was a very good study. But the fact is, with delirium, it's always kicked off by something, whether that's an acute medical condition, drugs related. And then on top of that, you get all sorts of other drivers and additional problems associated with the admitting illness in critical care. So you might come in with sepsis and then get renal failure, you're given sedation, you're on a ventilator. So all of these factors, and then we'll say, right, delirium is associated with worse outcomes, it's associated with long-term cognitive impairment. But while the whole delirium process is important in and of itself, is how much of the drivers are important in terms of the adverse outcomes. So is it okay to have one allow patients to get hyponatremic or not have their glasses, for instance, when they're reading in terms of long-term cognitive outcomes? So what this group did was effectively do a sort of virtual separation of the delirium into this bit of delirium associated. The patient had sepsis-associated delirium because they had signs of sepsis on that day. This bit of delirium is due to hypoxia because they had episodes of hypoxia on this day and so on to do with whether they were on sedation-associated, metabolic, and then there was an unclassified group where the patient, that patient day, the patient didn't have signs of sepsis, hypoxia, was not on sedatives and was not in kidney and, or liver failure, and that was unclassified. So they, they teased out all the delirium, said, like, this 
delirium that's associated with sepsis, but not hypoxia and sedation, they did multiple analysis, is associated with long-term cognitive impairment. So having done the analyses and separated the bits of delirium out into bits, they found that the sepsis and the hypoxia and the sedation-induced delirium were all associated with long-term cognitive impairment. So effectively what they were saying, the evidence, is if you give a patient sedation, uh, that in that is important in terms of determining whether they get long-term cognitive outcomes, independent of whether they have sepsis or those other conditions. And it's important because there is some kind of controversy or there's this idea that the sedation, you know, we need to give our patients sedation. They will, some of them get this sort of sedation-induced delirium, and but that's not such much of a problem because what we need to be doing is concentrating on the sepsis and hypoxia. And while we do need to be concentrating on the sepsis hypoxia, we have to bear in mind that the sedation burden is also adding in to the adverse outcomes. That's what the, the evidence suggested from this paper. Yeah, it's a really important addition to the literature. What future research would you say is needed, particularly in that area? There's the immediate and there's long term. So I think the short in the short term, clinicians need to take the, all of the guidance, all of this national standards, say, and the research state says, if you give patients, keep patients too deep, they'll have worse outcomes. But there's sort of motivated reasoning or whatever amongst clinicians that they say, right, okay, but they don't put it into practice. And they'll say, right, okay, well, they've only just been admitted, they're very sick. They're concerned, you know, they're legitimately concerned about episodes of agitation and patients pulling life support machines away and, and being in pain and uncomfortable. These patients, you know, look very sick. So they don't really feel they, they should wake them up. But if, if you keep your patients comfortable and awake and tackle episodes of agitation rather than keeping them very deep for two days, that could well influence this sedation-induced associated delirium. So research needs to be directed to give clinicians, bedside clinicians, the tools and the information that they need in order to support them, to enable them to keep patients awake or easily aroused. Long term, I think this idea of tackling different patients' groups of delirium, that would be quite productive. But what we need then is more known about the pathophysiology about delirium and how that the cause of delirium affects pathophysiology more. So we need to identify biomarkers, some means of separating the patients into different endotypes, as it were, rather than clinical phenotypes, and then directing therapies at those groups of patients. But that's quite a long way off. Well, you can read our new issue on critical care now online, uh, The Lancet Respiratory Medicine. It's been a pleasure to talk with, uh, with an expert in the field today. Dr. Page, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you very much.